Welcome to the Future of Education podcast with your host, Dr. Galen DeHay. Let's face it, colleges and universities must be innovative and might have to start thinking differently if they're going to overcome the challenges facing post-secondary education. I'm Galen DeHay, president of Tri-County Technical College, and this is the Future of Education a podcast where I discuss the issues and opportunities in higher education with some of the brightest minds running campuses today. Subscribe to the Future of Education on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. This podcast is brought to you by Tri-County Technical College, a public two-year community college located in upstate South Carolina. The college's mission is to provide students with an exceptional and affordable learning experience that improves their quality of life. Tri-County also advances economic development in the region by preparing a highly skilled workforce. Also brought to you by the Higher Education Studio of Macmillan Pazin Smith Architecture, a trusted college and university partner for master planning, architecture, and interior design services for academic, athletic, and student life facilities. We design environments that advance culture, create community, and enhance the campus experience. Our communities need their community colleges to serve them differently. So what does that mean? Today, we're going to talk about the importance of understanding our community's needs and more specifically, the students that come to our colleges. We're also going to talk about the importance of elevating and centering the student voice in the reforms that community colleges are making to improve our students' outcomes and we're going to explore the importance of the culture of love and what that can do to improve our students' outcomes. With us today is Dr. Russell Lowry Hart. Dr. Lowry Hart is president at Amarillo College in Texas. Under his leadership, he transformed the college's systems and culture centered around one word, love. Amarillo College has created a culture of caring based on clearly defined behaviors that guide every interaction between faculty, staff, and students. As a result of his leadership, Amarillo College was named a 2021 Top 5 Institution and Rising Star for the Aspen Prize for Community College Excellence. Welcome, Russell. Thank you so much. Thanks for that kind introduction. And I think framing what every college in the country's got to face. Yeah, uh, we are all facing similar challenges. So I want to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your college and the communities that you serve. Uh, so we're a college of around 10,000 students and we're in the panhandle of Texas. Uh, we're isolated. We're basically a five-hour drive from any population, Albuquerque, Oklahoma City, Denver, Dallas. So because of that isolation, we culturally have learned how to rely on and depend on and take care of each other. Uh, we're the most conservative congressional district in the country uh, by voting percentage, and we're also one of the most diverse in that we have the most refugees per capita than any city in the country. Uh, so there are juxtapositions and dialectics that I think are representative in our community and I think are dialectics that we navigate within our college as well. I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about that diverse community that you serve and what you have done to learn about the community. We're a community, I think, that reflects where the rest of the country is. So 
we're a community that is becoming more diverse in ethnicity and in religion. As a college or a minority-serving institution, the majority of our students are of color. The overwhelming majority of our students of color are Hispanic, Latinx. And we're a refugee center, so we have 42 different languages spoken on our local ISD. And that diversity has built and enriched our collective culture in ways that I don't think any of us would have have expected 30 years ago when it started, but I think we all love and value now. But we are also a community that in that diversity represents what I think most communities like us across the country are, are dealing with as well. We're a segregated community. We worship separately, we live separately, we learn separately, we shop separately. So we all work together, but we're a segregated community. And, and I think there are real challenges that as well. So you mentioned that uh, Amarillo College is one where individuals are dependent on one another and you've created a unique culture that I think bears some exploration here for a little bit. So you've uh, become known really nationally for a culture of care. I'm interested about what might have brought you to that realization that care will need in your community and care was what you wanted to focus on for your students. So I'm from this community. I've been in this community. I've raised my family here. My wife's from here. It's a community that has shaped me. So when I came to Amarillo College, I thought I really understood it. Um, and I looked at our data and our students were struggling uh, we weren't completing. They were struggling. They just, they weren't living up to the potential our community needed from them. Uh, and when I started talking with my colleagues about it, it was what I typically hear in higher education when we see data we don't like. Well, the high school's not preparing them. They're not serious. If they, if they were really serious or if they would dedicate themselves to studying and but there weren't solutions in that conversation. There was just uh, absolving us of responsibility for it. And so I thought, well, I want to know what the students think this data represents. And and I'll be honest, Galen, I went into those conversations. I, I talk about myself as a recovering faculty member and an academic. I went into those conversations thinking the students were going to give me all the academic uh, barriers and solutions that I was expecting and in some cases hoping that our data stunk because our students needed more tutoring and they needed more mentoring and they needed more active engaged pedagogy and more applied work-based learning and those are all true but the top 10 things that our students told me my students told me directly in focus groups that I conducted myself the top 10 reasons students thought they were struggling in that classroom had nothing to do with the classroom. Mm. Childcare, healthcare, transportation, food, housing, utility payments. Um, I was shocked by the legal services that our students require and only because I think we have laws that really penalize poverty in ways that we don't penalize other things. And those conversations changed who I am professionally and they changed who I am personally because I realized that if we were gonna be responsible for reimagining the economy in our region, 
we had to ensure these students finished what they started. And what they were telling us is there were a whole host of things that we had absolved ourselves of needing responsibility for that we had to then understand. And so I asked those same students and secret shoppers that I use to just tell me, given all of that, what the perfect college looked and felt like for them. And there were two things that kept saying over and over, the perfect college would just be full of people that cared about them and were willing to help them. And I was like, well, those, those are things that in higher ed we think are inherent in what we do every day, yet they were giving me examples that were heartbreaking where uh, our policies and our processes uh, basically told students they weren't smart enough to be here and didn't belong here, uh, and that we hadn't empowered our employees to help them through those processes. That was the generation of the culture of caring, understanding who our students were and what they needed from us, and then listening to them tell us what we needed to look like to help them overcome those barriers. That is so insightful because I think, uh, as you mentioned, a recovering faculty member, I, I think of myself in that way as well, starting in the faculty realm, as many of us uh, who are in the presidency experience, yeah. uh, we forget to talk to our students and seek out the insights of our students because they know so much and we've got so much to learn from them. So you, you talked a little bit about data and the importance of uncovering some of the gaps that existed in your organization. And we are hearing nationally that there are access gaps, achievement gaps, progress gaps, particularly for our lower income students and our students of color. And they seem to be, in some cases, insurmountable. And faculty and staff at colleges look at those data and they don't seem very personal. Uh, I think that you have approached things a little bit differently. One of my mentors told me years ago, data tells, but stories sell. So how have you used data and stories to help people grasp the importance of this work? Yeah, I love that saying, like I just wrote that down, um, data tells, stories sell. So the data, we had data summits and the data told us where our gaps were and where our students were struggling. But the most important thing our data told us is that we were doubling down on an educational system that was designed for a student 30, 40, 50 years ago, and that student wasn't the person in front of us now. So to help personalize that data, the data helped us understand the barriers. The data told us who our student was. And I had a data summit where I said, here's all the data about who our students were. They're first gen, they're living in the war zone of poverty, they're of color, they're women, mostly with a kid working two part-time jobs. And that data tells a particular story, but we didn't have start having a transformational experience around that data until I named that data representative. So we had a profile of a student and we were showing a profile, but until I named her Maria, and then started bringing Maria's into our data conversations. That data was just clinical. It didn't prick the heart and call us to action the way that understanding it through Maria's lens did. 
you know, making data personal, it, it's been an experience that I've had very recently. We've had a, a faculty staff, a professional development event, and uh, I shared a student story. We actually interviewed a student and summarized it into a one pager and uh, put people in groups to talk about that student, their experience. And you learn so much when you can personalize these gaps to what a person really lives every day. I think that uh, something that you brought up a little earlier about how we often in education blame other factors yeah. uh, other than accepting our own personal responsibility, uh, something that I've heard you say that has impacted me in the past is that we need to serve the students that we have, yeah. not those that we wish we had. Can you tell me a little bit more about that philosophy and that thought? Well, that really just came from talking to Maria and talking to our colleagues. So like you used those personas and that student experience to engage conversations with your colleagues, which is really powerful and important. Um, it wasn't just enough for us to understand who our typical student was, but we had to acknowledge that we weren't set up for her and we had to acknowledge what she needed from us. So our tagline at Amarillo College, you can go up to any employee and say, they, they may not be able to tell you about our accreditation. They may not even be able to tell you about our mission, but they can tell you about Maria and they can say, our job is to love her to success, that we're gonna love the students we have not the students we wished we had or the students we used to have. Or what I think is so uh, damaging is that we want to love the student that we were. So we think that because we had a definitive experience in higher ed and we wanted to stay in higher ed because of it, that every student has the same experience in higher ed. And so we build student organizations and uh, learning experiences based on what we loved instead of really listening to who our students are. And, and so I use love intentionally because one, our secret shoppers and Maria kept telling us over and over, they needed people would help us and care for us. And what they kept saying over and over, Galen, is that this is really personal work. Mm -hmm. And and much of what we try to do in higher ed is build policies and processes and bureaucracies that depersonalize mm. the person on the other side of it. And Maria kept basically saying, see me, look me in the eye, help me know my name, help me get where I need to go. Don't assume because I don't understand your policy or your bureaucracy or your language that I'm not smart enough to be here. Don't assume that I don't care enough to be successful here. Help me prove my capabilities. So she kept telling us over and over how personal it was. She kept saying how personal it was in our data summits. And one of our subsequent data summits, I just said, you know, what our students keep telling us over and over is they need us to love them. And love is not a word that we typically use in higher education. We would want to talk about higher ed speak to absolve us of the personal nature of it. And so I use love intentionally because we know what it's like to have it. We know what it's like not to have it, uh, and it's a very personal experience, and that's where we are. We're in a heart-to-heart -heart work where our community's future is going to depend on our ability to love it and not just 
provide opportunities to it. We have to love our students to those, through those, and successfully out of those opportunities. Uh, you bring up another, I believe, really important point that is something for higher ed to learn is that the work that we do isn't just about the credit. It's not just yeah. about the program that they're enrolled in. It's the experience we deliver. And your college has really worked on designing that experience. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about what kinds of things uh, that you changed, what infrastructure you might have put into place that has allowed for students to be more successful? So we allowed our students to help us craft a theory of change that has affected every part of our college. And there's three parts to the theory of change. The first is that we have to remove life barriers for our students. So a part of our student experience is we have robust emergency aid. We've hired five social workers. We built an advocacy and resource center. We have food pantries and clothing closets. And you're not going to food pantry your way out of the crisis of poverty in our country, but you can case manage and provide emergency aid for students and Everyone in the college has gone through poverty training to understand what it's teaching our students about themselves and about us uh, so that we can approach this work from a relational standpoint, not just a structural standpoint. So removing a light barrier has been really important. The second part of the theory of change, we have to change structures around accelerating students' time to degree. So because they're living in the war zone of poverty, and they're one crisis away from dropping out. And we did this amazing Hope Center data that helped us understand the veracity of our students' food and housing insecurity. And then a Trellis Financial Wellness Survey to understand that our students are an $83 emergency away from dropping out of college. So we had to put infrastructure in place for that. The second part is but because they're an $83 emergency away from dropping out, they can't take <clears throat> three, four, five years to get a credential that leads to a family sustaining wage. So we had to accelerate their time to degree. That meant eight week classes, 84% of our courses are now in eight week format. It meant completely killing developmental education and allowing students to go directly into four credit classes, but with a lot of co-rec support that's having tremendous impact. And it meant that we couldn't allow students the luxury of struggling and failing a class. So we have integrated required tutoring in all of our classes that accelerate students' success through our classes. So removing a life barrier, accelerated learning environment. And then the third one is a deep culture of caring. We allowed our students, and I'm not, it's crazy in higher ed, and so I'm not recommending that other schools do this, but we allowed our students to write for the college. Those values are service-oriented, relational, relationship-oriented, and they're written into every job description, including my own. They're in every employee evaluation, and they're the basis of our hiring uh, and those values are non-traditional. I think global education and critical thinking and problem solving are wonderful and the purpose of higher education, but they are not the values that tell us how we're supposed to do our work. Our students wrote our values. We riffed some of them from Zappos because they loved the Zappos values. 
we secret shopped companies that were known for the customer experience and the students settled on five values. Wow, innovation, family, fun, and yes. Wow, I wanna be wowed every time I interact with an employee. I want you to see me and redesign yourself for me innovatively. I want you to bring my family into the experience. It's not just that I wanna be a part of the AC family. I don't want you to use FERPA to, to tell me my family can't be a part of my learning journey. Um, our students talked about how scared they are to walk on our campuses and they wanted the experience to be fun and carefree. And Galen, the part of that conversation that just was a kick in the gut is how often our students who are, I think, the most oppressed, they're students of color living in the war zone of poverty, oftentimes parents without resources, they're struggling to survive and they work their ass off. Um, and our society and our school was telling them no at every turn. Mm -hmm. And they just wanted a place that would say yes. So we do, we say yes. Those things, that theory of change has changed our student experience. It has moved our completion rates from 20 to 60%. And it's allowed us to close our equity gaps um, by centering on love with life barriers, acceleration, and caring. I think that uh, some of the things that you share uh, provide a message of hope in the midst of all of the turmoil that our communities are facing and uh, the work that our colleges are doing that seems almost on some days insurmountable. Uh, I think that you have a message of hope for your students and your community. Uh, what gives you hope amid all of the challenges? Um, I don't know why that question just made me really emotional. I, um, Maria gives me hope. Um, working with colleagues that see her, understand her power and importance, want to support her ambition, my colleagues give me hope. Um, I think the sector of community colleges give me hope because what I see across the country are colleges that are having honest conversations um, that are that want to be innovative and in responding to what our communities and our students need from us. That gives me hope. But the the basis of my hope is when I talk to our students and they, work their ass off. They love their families deeply. They face their fears because they know the future of their families and the generations that follow rest on their shoulders. And they now find colleagues that just want to help them walk towards success. And when you see a Maria get a degree that pays a family sustaining wage and you see her children at graduation so proud of her, knowing that it's not just about Maria, but it's about changing the path of their families. That's how we save our country. Mm. Yeah. And community colleges are centered on that. And yeah. I think that we're seeing community colleges take up that mantle, particularly those like Amarillo, assuming this role of being the hub and the connector and the vehicle yeah. for economic mobility and community success and community vitality.
we're the glue. And, and even in our theory of change, I often say we're not a social service agency, but we have to glue our students to those social service agencies now so that they don't ever need them in the future. We're the glue for our students to get the skills that that will transform our regional economies. Our students rely on us. And my hope is when colleges understand that and step into it. Mm. What gives you hope, Galen? Where is your hope so located? My hope, is, my hope is from our students equally as well. Uh, I my joy comes from serving students, um, yeah. uh, being a first generation college student from a single parent family and what uh, the experience of college did for me to provide opportunity is why I come to work every day. And it's the the vision of our institution of uh, the focus of transforming lives and what that means for building strong communities and that we do that one student at a time and talk to students. We have uh, students speak at every one of our faculty staff events, convocation, faculty staff meetings, uh, my annual report last week, a graduate speaking. Uh, it's their voice that gives me hope and what they are capable of doing. And I think we, we often uh, diminish or forget to engage them uh, and having the humility to listen and yeah. to learn uh, as educators uh, from our students uh, gives me just immense joy and immense hope for what we can do. When we involve our students in designing the work that we do in partnership with them, magic can happen. Mm -hmm. And it does what I love the most about your institution and your vision, that it starts with passionate people you have to have passionate people in order to transform lives. Mm -hmm. And and I think that is that's exciting and it gives me hope. And it's why I love being a community college is that we allow people to be passionate mm -hmm. uh, and call us to it and encourage it and reward it. When I think so much of education uh, privileges cynicism, I think community colleges are breaking that mold. Yes, yes. So for our community college leaders who are listening, how do you even start in this work in the midst of the challenges that we're facing at our colleges? How do you start the work of transformation? Um, I think you start by um, talking to your students and evaluating your data. And in our case, our transformation started by letting our students look at the data and tell us what they thought it was saying. And what they told us they thought it was saying wasn't on any of our radars of what we thought the data was saying. Uh, they just helped us unlock it in a personal way. And as a result of starting there with students and data, we crafted a journey that is still surprising to me eight years into this transformation. Um, I didn't come to this role thinking that we were going to talk about poverty and eight-week classes and a culture of caring, but our students drove us in that direction and we had the courage enough to let them define the roadmap and, and followed them on that journey. Mm. Yeah, I think there are two lessons there uh, that you speak of. One is having the courage to do that work. And the other is that it's a journey. 
Uh, we yeah. use that metaphor a lot at our institution of we're on this journey uh, to improve the lives of individuals in our community. I think that it speaks to a prolonged commitment at yeah. the college and that it, this is not the, a new fad. It's not the thing of the day to work on. I, I think that's really, really critical. Um, and And a lesson I learned, like we were five years in uh, and we had increased our completion rates from like 20 to 48 percent and we had done a lot of this innovation and we had a general assembly and our data has improved and I saw collectively people took a deep breath and I actually talked to some of my colleagues that said oh, we did it we arrived and so they thought we had arrived and it was over and that they could take a deep breath then and then it would go back to normal which is easy and predictable. And what we had to learn is that innovation and culture isn't a destination, it's a process, and that we will be in the process of innovating and changing until we retire. It is not a destination, it's a mindset. And where we get in trouble is we think if we just get here and then we can stop, we're never going to get there. We just have to be on the journey to improvement. Oh, gosh, that's that's extremely powerful. Well, Russell, I want to thank you for sharing your story. You are an inspiration to me and to so many others and the work that you've done in your community, especially helping us to explore the importance of culture for improving student success. Thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you for the dialogue. Thank you for your own leadership and your community. Uh, and thank you for being a passionate person. Thanks for joining us on the future of education. If you enjoyed this discussion, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And please check out our other episodes.